You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. The Female Athlete Triad. What exactly is this? Why is this something important for you to be aware of as a parent, coach, or even a young athlete? As a problem that may be often overlooked, but can have huge implications to the long-term health of our young female athletes, this will be an episode you don't want to miss. Join us today on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast as we cover this very important medical issue. My guest today is Dr. Emily Krauss. Dr. Krauss specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation, otherwise known as physiatry, focusing on sports medicine in all ages. She is currently a clinical assistant professor at Stanford Children's Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center. She is involved in multiple research projects, including the Healthy Running Project, which focuses on bone stress injury prevention in collegiate, middle, and long-distance runners. She is research and clinical interest in endurance sports medicine, injury prevention, running biomechanics, the prevention of bone stress injuries in collegiate athletes, and the promotion of health and wellness at any age of life. She has completed nine marathons, more power to you, I've only got one, including the Boston Marathon twice and one 50K ultramarathon. With running and staying physically active as one of her personal passions, she recognizes the importance of fitness for overall well-being and the prevention of chronic medical conditions. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Krauss. Thank you for having me, Dr. Halstead. I'm excited. This would be good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. My wife, she's a cross-country coach at the high school level, and she was really excited when she heard I was going to be recording an episode on the, the female athlete triad. So why don't we just start there? I think that's the best part in describing to our listeners what exactly is this thing we call the female athlete triad. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. The female athlete triad is comprised of three interrelated components, including low energy availability with or without disordered eating. So that's potentially under fueling or overtraining or a combination of that. Number two is menstrual dysfunction. So that's irregular periods, whether that's a delay in a female athlete's first period or infrequent periods, so maybe less periods per year than the typical 12 per year. And then number three is low bone mineral density. And so that could be a history of bone stress injuries or stress fractures or stress reactions, as they're commonly referred to, or um, that could even be osteoporosis defined in certain populations, which we don't really use that definition as much in the adolescent female athlete. Are there certain sports we should be concerned about when we talk about our young females that may be at most risk for the triad? No sport is immune to the triad. All athletes can be subject to having one or all components of the triad, but research has shown that there are certain sports that are at higher risk. Sports that emphasize leanness or aesthetics, such as gymnastics, diving, ice skating, dance, weight class sports like wrestling, boxing, rowing, and then kind of these gravitational sports in which weighing less can and be, quote unquote, I'm using finger quotes here, advantageous for success. So that's running, high jump, pole vault, and cycling. You know, we've talked about in sports medicine, this thing called red S or what's known as the relative energy deficiency in sport. 
talk a little bit about this and what is different about that than when we refer to the triad, because there's been some shift in us using those terms. Yes, I'm glad you asked. And I think that there is some confusion. I feel like it's all really important information. And to just clarify, um, in 2014, the International Olympic Committee Consensus Group introduced this term, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports, termed RED-S for short. This is an expansion of the female athlete triad to really address the consequences of low energy availability. This covers a kind of a broader array of both physiologic and performance outcomes, and it includes both women and men because men are also not immune to the negative consequences of low energy availability. Yeah, I think that's an area that gets overlooked. Obviously, we're talking about female athletes here, but we do have to remember that some of our male athletes suffer from some of these same things. Obviously, not all of the spectrum that we're talking about, but certainly the relative energy deficiency in sport, no question. Yes, yes, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about a tweet. You know, I'm on Twitter and I know you are as well. And you sent out an infographic that went somewhat viral back in July. And you talked about common misconceptions of female athletes. And it's kind of crazy in sports medicine where we see these these certain tweets go viral. It's kind of weird. You know, when I've done stuff on Twitter, I, I you know, it's I don't know which one's going to go viral. I don't intend to make them go that way. It's but certainly when it does, you know that that's an area that people are really interested about and is is probably a, a good thing for us as sports medicine and doctors to really teach more about that because people are hungry for that. So you had three key misconceptions in the infographic, and I'll be sure to include a link to your tweet so any of our listeners can reference back to that as well. The first misconception you tackled was something I've heard way too often. I've heard spread by many coaches of female runners, and honestly, most of whom were male, that a female cross-country or track runner losing their period during their season, especially when many teammates may have this happen to them as well, is a normal thing. Shed some light on this misconception. Yeah. First of all, I did not expect that tweet or this infographic to go viral. I was inspired to create it after I was on another podcast with Ann Guzman. She's a sports nutritionist. I was trying to explain hormonal contraception and I was stumbling through this explanation and I was like, okay, I need to sit down and really come up with something that's clearly understood and um, share this with individuals because it is still happening in my clinic and I feel I was, I was shocked to see that athletes still had some misunderstandings about periods. First of all, still some running teams feel that losing periods is this rite of passage, that it's, it's normal to lose periods during heavier bouts of training. And evidence has consistently argued the contrary for this. Unfortunately, the menstrual irregularities in high school runners are quite high. And we'll talk about the study that I did with Paige Scorseth in a little bit. But the the menstrual regularities in high school athletes are high. And it really highlights this importance to understand why this is happening. And oftentimes losing periods during a season is due to low energy availability. So fueling is not matching those exercise efforts. And if this is happening, it really should be brought up to a coach, maybe a parent or athletic trainer or sports medicine physician. And I think that's an important thing, and especially when we talk about female athletes and we were discussing low energy availability, you know, a lot of times we automatically default, well, maybe this person has an eating disorder, they have anorexia, bulimia, something along those lines. But that that really may not be the case. It's just, unfortunately, we're not teaching nutrition well enough. And I had two really great episodes recently on my pediatric sports medicine podcast talking about nutrition and athletes, and just we're not 
giving these kids the proper information they need of how to fuel themselves before they run. And then they go out and they do all this exercise and they're just not matching their energy needs with what they're taking in. And that's where we can run into these problems. And they may be doing everything else right. It's just, they're just not getting enough in. Yeah, exactly. And I think you raise a good point that it's often this situation of inadvertent underfueling. So they don't realize they're underfueling. Could be fuel timing where they're not refueling or prefueling at the right times. Just those changes. It doesn't always have to be a massive increase in overall caloric intake. Sometimes it's just um, timing that fueling throughout the day better or even the type of fueling that they're getting in their body. I mean, I, I, I joked, I think, at another podcast that if you have the option, especially as a runner who needs the fuel, if you have an option of a donut or no donut, go for the donut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a long runner, I will say I will still go for the donut, unfortunately. That's, that's why I need to run at this point in my life. Second area you discussed was that because an athlete loses their period during the season, the next step would be having their doctor put them on the pill. Does that make a lot of sense to you? It doesn't. And I will say that I'm not anti-pill. There are a lot of really important reasons for an individual to be placed on hormonal contraception, including birth control. But it's really important if a female athlete loses her period to consider other potential causes. Of course, pregnancy, I have to say it, but other chronic diseases, thyroid issues, polycystic ovarian syndrome, as well as what we're talking about, which is low energy availability. And especially if this is happening during a training block, that seems like the, the low-hanging fruit that should be addressed first and foremost. And I really think that that should be explored before just going to starting an athlete on the pill. Yeah, I see that get defaulted to way too often. And I cringe internally sometimes when I see that's done, mm -hmm. but it doesn't sound like anything else has really been done to evaluate, well, why did this female runner stop having their period? And it's just too crucial to let that go. It's obviously an easy thing to just, well, let's get it started by putting you on the pill. But yeah, and I, I do truly take your point as far as the first thing we need to make sure is that they're not pregnant. And that's, mm -hmm. that, that's the first thing I think that we're all taught in medical school is the first thing when someone loses their period, even at, at any age, <laughs> you need to start thinking about pregnancy as the mm -hmm. first cause. Yes. So how about putting a female athlete who's had a stress fracture on hormonal contraceptive to help their bone health? Is that an expectation we should be giving to a female athlete who is on the pill? I think earlier on in the earlier research that there was this misconception that the oral contraceptive pill would help provide some level of hormones to the athlete to help with bone health. However, the research on oral contraceptive pills to optimize bone health has not shown a consistent benefit. In fact, it has actually led to reductions in overall bone mass in certain research studies. That isn't a good solution for trying to improve an athlete's bone health. Dr. Ackerman and Dr. Misra at um, Boston Children's did conduct a very well-done study, did show positive effects on bone mineral density using transdermal, so not an oral contraceptive, but a patch of estrogen. And I really think that going down that route is after really addressing all other underlying causes first. So I think focusing on the low energy availability, the nutrition, potentially adjusting the training volume to allow for periods to come back regularly and naturally on their own is the first step of management. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk more about the female athlete tried with Dr. Kraus. You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcast Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now 
at whatisthepodcastmatrix.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my growing audience of engaged parents and dedicated coaches of young athletes, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it all out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. We are back with Dr. Emily Krauss from Stanford, and we are talking about all things female athlete triad. Moving to something different, I'd love to talk about this article that you were referencing earlier that was published recently in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes that you are a co-author on. And just to summarize for our listeners the research, the purpose was to look at how frequently the female athlete triad risk factors that we see are in high school distance runners and how frequent iron supplementation was among the same runners. And then you also looked at this screening tool to put a risk score for the female athlete triad. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. There was 38 runners in the study. And to summarize the findings for our listeners, so 76.3% of runners had self-reported disordered eating or eating disorders. 23.7% reported a delay in the start of their menstrual period. had a history of losing their period or had infrequent menstrual periods. 42.1% had low bone mineral density. 42% were taking iron supplements. And 15.8% had reported a prior bone stress injury. First, these findings. So how do these compare to other studies that's been published on this area? Because there have been obviously other studies published in this area that have looked at these same issues. How did your study compare to those? Really good question. I will say this is 38 runners, so it's still kind of a, a smaller study on the scale of studies. It's a pilot study exploring this cumulative risk assessment tool, which we can talk about in greater detail. In general, especially um, that first statistic you quoted was 76% of runners had self-reported disordered eating or eating disorders. We were shocked to see that. These are self-reported, but we did share that this is anonymous, and I think the athletes were quite honest with us. And that number is quite a bit higher than what we have seen in other high school female athlete runners. The other numbers are, are a little bit more on par with what we're seeing in that group, although I would say the irregular periods or losing their periods was on the higher side with 46, almost 46%. I think it's important for our listeners when we talk about studies, because too often there's like take home points from studies. And then we, we forget to look at all the nitty gritty details. You're looking at 38 runners in this study. How did you recruit these runners? Because obviously there may be some bias in a study when we look at this, as far as those numbers being higher than what we've seen previously. Absolutely. And this was definitely one of our limitations is just self-selected bias of an athlete who is curious about getting these this information, including getting an iron level or understanding if they're iron deficient as part of the study, as well as just overall kind of bone health questions. But we recruited long and far for this study. And Paige was a, a research intern for the summer, a med student at 
University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she did all sorts of recruitment through social media to the different high schools. We went to different running stores and clubs, and we had a couple of professional athletes, professional runners actually share the the flyer out to their followers. And we got a couple of recruits from that alone. But I will say that these athletes in general are kind of those higher risk athletes that are quite competitive and and really high school runners in the truest sense. Absolutely. One of the things that you did in this study is you looked at bone mineral density. So what's the significance of the finding of the low bone mineral densities in such a large number of these runners? How does that have an implication and what should we be talking about with our high school runners? And, And do you feel that it's important to look at female runners' bone mineral density in general, even if they don't have problems? Yeah. The reason we assess bone mineral density is because we perform DEXAs, which stands for dual energy x-ray absorptiometry. And those are the closest indicator of bone health that have been studied in all populations. DEXAs are more commonly considered in the perimenopausal or osteoporotic kind of older patient population, but we do use these in all ages and we've found ways to compare those values from age group to age group and different sexes. So I think that Measuring bone mineral density in the high school female athlete can come with challenges. Athletes develop at different rates, and so it's a little more challenging to know what to do with those um, numbers, including what the bone mineral density score is for these athletes. However, if you start to track these, you can start to see year-to-year trends. And a snapshot, especially a snapshot where there may be a lower level, is something that can require or you can take action on. We were surprised to see such higher incidence of low bone mineral density for age and with 42% in this, in this group. I feel like it's super important in the high school population because adolescence is this critical time for bone acquisition. 90% of peak bone mass is typically achieved by 18 years of age. Preventing this progression or consistently low bone mineral density is really critical for preventing future bone stress injuries or stress fractures. I think that's a take home point. That's that's probably ripe for an infographic there, Emily, as far as, you know, we could, we need yes. to stress and drive home that point about that peak bone mass is so critical when you're growing up and before you leave high school. And I think it just gets underemphasized too much, especially for our female athletes that we, we don't want to set them up for peaking out so low that they're getting all these fragility fractures when they're elderly women or, or even younger, obviously, that we yeah. get worried about because they're athletes. And especially when they are coming into your clinic, coming into our clinics, and there are very preventable causes to these injuries or just these early signs. And a lot of it is addressing nutrition, addressing training. And I think us being more aware and the coaches and the parents being more aware of some of these early, early trends um, can be really valuable for just longevity in sports and just overall bone health. Absolutely. You and I both have an interest in bone stress injuries. I've had a couple myself in my 30 plus years of running and and we're both doing some collaborative research, which is an awesome project that we're looking at some unique stress injuries that athletes get 
the more rare ones and trying to figure out some more good data about them because we just don't have a lot of some of these bone stress injuries. Were you surprised that only 15% of the runners that you looked at had reported a bone stress injury? And, and while we're on the topic, can you talk a little bit more about bone stress injury and what that means? Because we, we talk about that a lot and probably many of our listeners have heard about stress fracture, but when we use the term bone stress injury, what's really the difference there? First of all, shout out to our pediatric research and sports medicine group on our <laughs> unique bone stress injuries. Man, it's a definitely a rock star team, and I really enjoy working and exploring these um, these injuries in greater detail with with you, and just appreciate all the work that you've done to contribute to our study. So I'm excited to go on to the to the next anatomic location, and uh, maybe we can even do a, a podcast on on the naviculars and the femoral neck sometime in the in the future. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but um, back to your first question, as far as our overall bone stress injury incidence rate of almost 16%. So that's pretty on par with what we see in the high school athletes. In fact, I think another study quoted about 5% in um, females and 4% in males. I think it's important to note that oftentimes shin splints are a little bit of a our medial tibial stress syndrome aren't usually included in that bone stress injury or stress fracture incidence rate. And oftentimes, I think that medial tibial stress syndrome, if not managed appropriately, can potentially progress to something more significant to that tibial stress fracture, bone stress injury category. Um, but I also think that in high school athletes, those more dramatic or traumatic type injuries or stress bone stress injuries don't really develop until their later teens or maybe collegiate years. And that's what's really scary is all of these habits are are forming. Maybe an athlete is losing their periods or has very irregular periods, but hasn't had the big bad injury that sidelines her for a, a season until college. And then in college, everything comes together and it's like, oh my goodness, why didn't I intervene or get intervention or treatment earlier when I was acquiring all this bone mass? I think that this is pretty accurate, this 16% number. And it just shares almost this scary fact that these athletes may not come to you for the for the injury. And that's why it's really important as a coach, as someone who's doing pre-participation physicals annually, the high school and high school setting too, to be asking about regular periods and if irregular, inquiring more deeply about nutrition and training and kind of using different risk scores, which we'll talk about to help guide the clinician or guide the, the athlete to a safer intervention. I interchange bone stress injury, stress reaction, stress fracture often, mainly just because I know it's still really confusing for the listener to, to figure out what I'm talking about. And so just to kind of take a couple of steps back, a bone stress injury results when bone is unable to withstand repetitive mechanical loading or impact due to factors that disrupt the load, strength, or bone remodeling. These injuries can exist along a continuum from small microscopic damage, commonly referred to as stress reactions, or I usually call them lower-grade bone stress injuries, progressing to a full-on fracture line, so higher-grade bone stress injuries at the most extreme. We see that competitive cross-country and track and field athletes had the highest incidence of bone stress injuries compared with other athletes, and female athletes have a higher incidence of bone stress injuries than their male counterparts, really highlighting the need to address some of the potential risk factors for bone stress injury, which include the female athlete triad. 
I have an analogy I give to my patients and I I apologize to any provider who I may have stole this from years ago because I've used it for so long now. I don't remember if this was something I created on my own or someone said this to me, but the way I kind of explain the stress injury spectrum to my patients, I always tell them to think of their bones as being like a paperclip. And if I take a paperclip and I bend and bend and bend a paperclip, it gets real easy to bend. I keep on bending it and then it breaks. So I tell them that, you know, the stress reaction or the stress injury, so to speak, is is where the paperclip is getting easy to bend. If they keep pushing through it, then they get the actual stress fracture, so the crack of the bone. I've used that a lot. I, I think it, it gives a good visual for patients, kind of to let them understand a little bit kind of what's going on in that spectrum. Because it's everybody just assumes, I think, that, well, is it a stress fracture or not? When you say it's a stress reaction, they don't kind of get what that means. Mm-hmm. That's a really good analogy. I like that. I like that a lot. Feel free to steal it. Like I said, yes, if I stole I it from somebody, <laughs> let's pass it on. <laughs> iron supplementation. What are your thoughts about the number of athletes that were taking iron supplementation, which were at 42% in your study? Were you surprised? Was this too high, too low? And you know, I do actually have a question for you, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but I'll let you kind of just comment first on the, the number. Yeah, I was a little surprised, but after talking and being in, in clinic a little bit more, I realized how many athletes are are supplementing with iron and are blindly supplementing with iron. So they're supplementing because their teammate is on iron or their coach encouraged everyone to get on iron during the season. And that number is probably a little bit It's a little bit higher than I would have expected, but what is even of greater concern is the higher female athlete triad risk factors for those athletes that were supplementing with iron. It raises the question, are they supplementing with iron without addressing other underlying issues of their iron deficiency? Or are they just not even getting the baseline level? Are they even iron deficient? Yeah, I think that's an important point. I, I you know, I see a difference. I, I certainly see a lot more female athletes at the collegiate level who I think are blindly taking it without necessarily having been tested than I do at the high school level. But I certainly see I see a little bit more of a creep up of that. But one question I had for you is the criteria used in the study as far as what you considered a low or normal ferritin. So I, I've seen this keep creeping up in various studies that I read about iron deficiency and the ferritin level of 35 being considered the normal value. I've seen 20, I've seen 30. You guys you explain your choice of 35. Yeah, I agree. You go to all these different, I mean, you look up normal ferritin levels and it's like 12 or 15 and maybe maybe 20, but it's still, I think it's actually, I think it's lower because I have athletes who come in and they're like, yeah, my ferritin was red as normal. And then I'm like, okay, well, what, what was normal? And they're like, oh, 13. <laughs> yeah, right. And I like fall off the chair and I'm like, well, that might explain some of your fatigue symptoms. This this is based on a, a study, actually two studies from European Journal of Sport Science and Journal um, of Science and Medicine and Sport. And they both use 35 as the, the, the ferritin level for non-anemic iron deficiency. And for a lot of clinicians, they don't believe in non-anemic iron deficiency. And I think for particular populations, and I would say runners kind of fall into that group, I do see the effects of athletes dipping under that 35, especially in the 20s, as far as overall performance. And in my mind, if they're not performing well, that could lead to kind of poor, like inefficient movement patterns that over time could lead to excess strain and load on bones and tendons and joints. That being said, I also think it's important to to address their diet. Are they vegetarian or vegan? 
Are they getting other iron-rich food sources? I think really tapping into getting all your nutrients from whole foods and eating a variety of different foods is, is number one goal. Replacing like meal replacements, using bars, using supplements, vitamins, a bunch of protein shakes throughout the day. In my mind is, I mean, it's, it's, it's something and yeah, sure, it kind of checks the box, but we're really missing the overlying importance of just balanced nutrition. And I feel like the earlier the athlete starts to take control of, of the nutrition and really planning out their day as far as meals and snacks, the, the better off they're going to be, especially when they transition from that high school to collegiate level. And if they want to either compete in college or just stay recreationally very active, having a good relationship with food is super important. So I got another infographic for you now talking about the iron. We, we need to have a public campaign yes. effort as far as for our primary care colleagues, just who aren't doing sports medicine to realize that you can't take that ferritin level, what's normal from the lab and assume that that's normal for a female athlete. Cause mm -hmm. That comes up way too often in my office as well, where, you know, the lab said it was in the normal range and they're hiding in that teens or they even get down to single digits. I've had some labs that actually still consider a single digit being normal for ferritin. And we're like, oh my gosh, you really need some help here. And, and uh, yeah, it's, that's, that's another one to work on. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm not discouraging. I think some athletes just need to be on iron supplementation, especially when their training increases. But I just, I really want to advise against coaches to urge blind supplementation without really exploring the, the bigger issue as far as just nutrition. What's your thought as far as just screening for female athletes in general, they're going to be in an endurance sport like cross country? It would be a little premature for me to say that every female runner needs a ferritin level. I think you should kind of take it as a case-by-case -case basis. They're vegetarian or vegan. My threshold is a little lower to order that. Their triad risk is higher. My threshold is lower to order that. And I think it, better it would be to go through a more thorough um, questioning as far as kind of assessing overall triad risk and that would include additional lab workup if necessary, which could include iron. It's kind of to pivot off of that a little bit as far as do we want to get DEXAs, for example, or measure bone mineral density in all female athletes. And I also don't think that that's valuable information, especially if the ordering provider doesn't know what to do with that information and can't put it into context. I think especially in a younger high school or in the, the younger athlete, I'm a high school athlete, there is a possibility that their DEXA can be completely normal. And that may provide some, some false reassurance as far as the athlete goes that, okay, my bones are healthy. But I think that there are just some limitations with a matching age and bone age and how to properly interpret those, those DEXA um, reports. And that's a perfect transition to my next question for you about just bone density testing in general. We talk about two scores that are reported on a bone density test. There's a Z-score and a T-score. You reported the Z-scores, which is very appropriate for this age group. Can you explain to our listeners the differences between the Z-score and the T-score and why the Z-score is most relevant for our young female athletes? <laughs> Oh, what's that? Like the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> right. a Willy Wonka quote in here somewhere. Yes, there is. 
very confusing, especially if you're not used to, if you're not around these reports and scores very often. But um, I was talking about postmenopausal women earlier, and the term osteopenia and osteoporosis have very pretty clear definitions in that age range. Or, or stage of life or development. Um, and osteopenia is defined as a T-score between negative one and negative 2.5. Osteoporosis is a T-score of negative or less than negative 2.5. These values were especially established for Caucasian postmenopausal women. These aren't used in young female athletes. So for this population, it's recommended to use Z-scores because they are age and sex matched. And in adolescent premenopausal females, any Z-score less than negative two is defined as low bone density for chronological age. And I think it's really important. I don't use the definition osteoporosis or osteopenia often in this age group. That requires a clinically significant fracture history and a low bone mineral content or low bone mineral density less than negative two. So I think it's important to really kind of know the, know the definitions, know kind of the language and the population that you're, you're dealing with. And on your study, you were piloting, looking at this female athlete triad risk score as part of this study. So how did mm -hmm. that pan out? There are some challenges taking a triad risk score that is used for a more of a collegiate level or over the age of 18 and trying to adapt it to a high school athlete. First of all, if this high school athlete is 15, they may not have had their period yet, and they haven't even reached like the 16 age range where we would kind of consider that to be truly delayed menarche or delayed periods. So we're dealing with an age that they may just have not reached puberty, and 14, 15 age range can be a challenge. There's also some variability in menstruation during that time around that if they're during the first year or two. And so we have to factor that period irregularity was a challenge and a limitation. And then overall, just calculation of body mass index or BMI is, is different in the adolescent athlete. So we had to adapt the, the triad risk scoring tool to factor in all of these considerations. And I will also just kind of backtrack that. that so we use this um, risk scoring tool was created by the Female Athlete Triad Coalition back in 2014. And it was based off of a consensus statement entitled 2014 Female Athlete Triad Coalition Consensus Statement on Treatment and Return to Play of the Female Athlete Triad. And the goal was to create a risk assessment tool that would provide physicians, athletic trainers, other healthcare providers, a, a more accurate diagnosis and treatment for the triad to provide clear recommendations for return to play. All of those risk factors are, are scored and an athlete gets a, a, a risk score. And based on that risk score, they are cleared, given provisional or limited clearance or are not cleared. And really the athletes that are not cleared are those with more significant eating disorders or significant um, stress fracture history where the more kind of complete bone health workup is necessary. For our study, we found about 60% of athletes, female athletes fell into that moderate risk score and only about 5% fell in that high risk score. And that's that's of concern too. You know, it's it's challenging because we're using a modified or adapted um, cumulative risk assessment tool that hasn't really been studied in this this patient population to much of a degree that we would like to see. But it still raises concern that this five percent is in that high risk category. 
And we kind of extrapolate that. What does that look like and how are they getting treated? Yeah, that's important. And we'll make sure to have a link to that document you referred to as far okay. as the female athlete triad in our show notes for sure. So our listeners can can look at that if they'd like. What advice would you give to a parent that's concerned that their daughter or to a coach concerned that their female athlete may be dealing with the triad? How, how should they approach that? I think we need to create an environment where it's okay to speak up for it's okay for athletes to speak up when something's off, whether that's a missed period, a sudden weight change, change in eating habits, excess stress at home, school, in athletics, or just even general fatigue. The more that coaches can allow for these really authentic check-ins, and same with parents that show that there's a genuine concern and also just they want the best for that athlete, just for overall health and longevity. I think that will allow a greater openness in that environment. And I also think it's about education. That infographic was this heartwarming moment when I saw how often it was shared and commented on by high school coaches and parents of high school runners. And I think that's the start is having this discussion using that infographic as the foot in the door, the starting point, the discussing, the talking point, and then um, having a really open discussion about like, what are your feelings about periods? And how does this make you change your approach to training? That's a great starting point for parents and coaches is to just initiate that discussion. And we've seen in the last year or so, I think it was right around this time last year when Mary Kane came out in the New York Times, with this, Mary Kane is a, a professional runner who ran for the, the Nike team and just shared some really kind of raw experiences of her kind of collegiate years and high school years and the pressures she experienced to look a certain way as a runner and be a certain body type and weigh a certain amount. And that really, really broke her down. And I think it was really brave of her to open up to the world with this with this information. Since that time, there's been some really good follow-up, even just commentary from our colleagues in the sports medicine world as far as what we're going to do and this kind of call to action from better research, better advocacy for these groups. So I think having role models speak out is also really helpful. And we should use that, take that momentum and really kind of piggyback on that as much as we we really can to spread the good word. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point. I think it's it's all about creating a culture with your team and making sure that we're not emphasizing the weight part of things. You know, not not going out there and having a you know a group weight in front of everybody kind of thing, as I I've known some teams have done. And I think that becomes a challenge for male coaches of female athletes of being able to do that. You know, as a as a male physician. I feel comfortable talking about it with my patients, but I, I can certainly tell that there would be certain females that would not feel comfortable talking to me about their periods and all that type of stuff. And, and I get that. And I think it's going to be the same way, especially if you're not in the healthcare field of a male coach bringing up that topic. And I think that's where you know having an assistant coach or having a head coach who is a female, I, I think can be really valuable in those situations there to help promote that culture of what we really need to have for these teams. Mm -hmm. I think using team captains who maybe have have a little bit more experience and a little maturity with these topics to also be advocates of, of these important messages would be really helpful. 
And that can be a challenge too, right? Because you'll have, you may have an athlete who is dealing with the triad who may be performing extremely well. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of pervades this culture. Well, well, she's doing this and she does this particular way of eating or what have you, and that's worked for her. And then that can become kind of snowball on the team and can actually wind up being a bad thing too. So that's, it's really hard, right? You know? Yeah. And I think it's it's really important. I mean, you raise a good point about just different body types and when athletes are transitioning through different stages of development and how they're going to fuel. If you give every female athlete a bowl of oatmeal with nut butter and then have them go run their long run on Saturday, they're going to, they're going to perform differently with that fuel and making sure that they understand that they need to adapt their nutrition to their body and to their body during that time. And those demands may be different. And I think trying to avoid that comparison of responses to training, responses to nutrition, and just kind of timing of those peaks and valleys of performance, it's challenging, but I think it's an important practice to try to learn to really kind of go kind of look within as opposed to look outside and compare. Yeah. So any take-home points that you have for our listeners about the triad? I just can't emphasize enough the importance of nutrition and fueling the body. I think it's a secret weapon to performance, but also just injury risk reduction and not even just bone stress injuries, but really all musculoskeletal injuries and that risk reduction with better kind of energy balance. I think trying to emphasize the importance of eating as much as of your nutrients as opposed to supplementing um, is another important takeaway. And just really trying to build each other up, especially during these these times of COVID. And you and I, we had talked um, before we started this podcast about just overall um, mental health and me- mental wellness right now. And in my clinic, I have seen the stress and anxiety and depression levels really get amplified in the last, how many months are we at? Eight eight months of this, too many, too many months of this pandemic and really talking about that mental health piece and making sure that an athlete is getting the resources that he or she needs to kind of feel that, that that's taken care of in a way and feel supported. And I think it is our, our job to ask about those, those stress levels and how they're, how they're feeling and how they're coping as that's going to really kind of manifest into sports performance, school performance, relationships. And I think that that can potentially really increase risk of overall disordered eating habits too. I think starting early and trying to find ways to intervene when that spiral starts to happen can be really valuable to avoid some of the more severe consequences. 100% agree. I'd really like to thank Dr. Emily Krause for her time, knowledge, and expertise in shedding some light on the female athlete triad for our listeners. This is truly an important health topic and one that I think too often gets overlooked, either intentionally or unintentionally. We'll be sure to cover this topic more in future episodes. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. We'd love for you to leave us feedback and rate us on your favorite streaming platform to help us get the word out about our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.